I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, Episode 6, The Right of Sodomy. I'm reading from The Right of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church, Volume 4, by Randy Engel, and from pages 817 to 821. Ryan resigns prior to lawsuit filing. On October 19, 1999, Bishop Daniel Ryan resigned his office and stepped down as the Bishop of Springfield. His resignation was immediately accepted by Pope John Paul II. Ryan admitted no wrongdoing, saying that he was simply taking an early retirement, a full six years before the mandatory age of 75, and only one week before a lawsuit was filed against the Diocese of Springfield that named Bishop Ryan as a defendant. Katie Sass, public relations spokesman for the diocese, said there was no connection between Ryan's decision to retire and the pending lawsuit. Right. On October 28, 1999, attorneys Frederick W. Nessler of Springfield and Stephen Rubino of New Jersey filed multiple charges of sexual assault and battery against Reverend Alvin J. Campbell, the former pastor of St. Maurice Church in the Springfield Diocese, on behalf of Mr. Matthew McCormick. Also named in the civil suit was the Diocese of Springfield and two former ordinaries, Bishops Joseph A. McNicholas, deceased, and Daniel L. Ryan, who were charged with covering up Campbell's pederastic crimes. What makes the McCormick case so extraordinary was the allegation contained herein that Bishop Ryan ignored his oath and obligation of celibacy by virtue of multiple homosexual relationships with then, now former, male prostitutes and other priests or deacons to wit John Doe X, John Doe Y, and Reverend Father John Doe Z, the identities of whom are known to the defendants among others, during his tenure as bishop to such an extent that an atmosphere of tolerance to the sexual abuse of minors was thereby created, facilitated, and perpetuated by Defendant Ryan. McCormick, a former altar boy, now 32 and living in Texas, said the defendant, Father Campbell, abused him for a three-year period beginning in 1982 and ending in 1985. McCormick said he did not know he was harmed until he entered therapy in 1998. By the time the suit was filed, Father Campbell had already been released from prison after serving seven years of a 14-year sentence for the homosexual molestation of minor males. Stymied in the courts by the statute of limitations, the McCormick case, like many others, went nowhere until 2002. In July of that year, Governor Rod R. Blagojevich signed legislation that increased the statute of limitations for sexual molestation cases. The new law extended the time for filing a civil lawsuit from two to 10 years after a victim of sex crime, sex abuse, reaches adulthood. By September 2002, prospects for the McCormick case appeared more promising. It became the first case of the revised law on the statute of limitations. At a December 2, 2002 hearing, 
on the constitutionality of the new law, lawyers on both sides asked the Sangamon County judge to postpone making a ruling on the matter as they were working on an out-of-court settlement that would cover McCormick and 27 other victims of clerical sex abuse in the Springfield Diocese. In the meantime, a fourth man had come forth to accuse Bishop Bryan of molesting him in 1984, when he was only 15 and a minor under the law. Ryan denied the charges. Charges against Bishop Ryan multiply. In a two-page affidavit signed on July 12, 2002, Frank T. A. Segreto, 33, said he first met Ryan in August of 1984. This would have been only seven months after Ryan's installation as Bishop of Springfield. Segreto said he was not a prostitute, just a 15-year-old streetwise kid. He said he was walking near South Grand Avenue in Springfield when Ryan offered him a ride. The bishop took him to the rectory at Immaculate Conception, where he offered the boy $50 to take off his clothes and let Ryan massage him with baby oil. He said the bishop wanted to penetrate him, but he managed to fend him off. Segreto said, Segreto added that Bishop Ryan tried to pick him up a second time, but when the boy saw who it was, he refused to get into the car. Segreto passed a polygraph test. In addition to Segreto, three other men have filed affidavits swearing that Bishop Ryan engaged them in sexual acts. Danny Evans, now 36, was working as a male hustler back in 1985 when he first met Ryan. In a 14-page transcript filed with the court in 1999, Evans swore that from the mid-1980s until the late 1990s, he had at least 50 sexual encounters with Bishop Bryan, who paid him 50 or more dollars a trick. Evans said that Ryan took him along on trips to Indiana, Ohio, Chicago, and Wisconsin. The last trip was in 1998, just months before Ryan's resignation. Like, like Frank Bergen, Evans also has a police record that includes possession of drug paraphernalia, domestic battery, and contributing to the delinquency of a minor. Evans passed a polygraph test. Accuser John Reeves is a young man cut from a much different cloth than Evans and Bergen. Reeves was serving as an acolyte at St. Paul's Church in Highland in Madison County in the fall of 1984 when Bishop Bryan asked Reeves to accompany him to a meeting in Chicago. Reeves agreed at the motel where the two men shared a room. Ryan came out of the shower and told Reeves that he loved him. Reeves said that he mumbled something back like, I love you too, at which point Ryan grabbed him and kissed him, grabbed and kissed him and started to rub his back. Reeves said he was in a state of shock as Ryan was his bishop. The encounter went unreported. Reeves began to travel with Bishop Ryan on a regular basis with the pair ending up sharing sexual intimacies at a motel room or at the bishop's residence on at least 15 occasions. In his seven-page affidavit, Reeves stated that he felt pressured into the relationship because he was afraid that Ryan might refuse to obtain, ordain him. In fact, Ryan raised him to the diaconate that December and ordained him a priest of the Springfield Diocese 
in May 1985. After his ordination, Reeves continued to travel with the bishop, sharing motel rooms, visiting bathhouses, and vacationing in the Cayman Islands and Puerto Rico. Reeves said that the Springfield Chancery staff was aware of the priest's special relationship with Ryan and that he, Reeves, became the butt of many being became the butt of nasty remarks. At one point, he went to Father Thomas Holinga, the Vicar General and Director of Clergy Personnel for the Diocese, to complain that Ryan was constantly pressuring him for sexual favors. Reeves said, said that Holinga just laughed. Father John Rankin, who also worked at the Chancery, also knew about Ryan's harassment of Reeves, but offered no help to the young priest. The relationship came to an end in 1988. Bishop Ryan entered a treatment center for alcoholism, and Reeves, by now a confirmed homosexual, found a lover of his own choosing at St. Brigid Parish in Liberty, where he had been reassigned. After St. Brigid, the priest served in churches in Decatur and Alton. Unhappy with this situation, Reeves requested and was granted a leave of absence by Bishop Ryan in late 1992. In January 1995, Reeves left the Catholic Church and joined the Ecumenical Catholic Church, later renamed the Catholic Church of the Americas, headed by his homosexual partner. He is now a self-proclaimed Bishop of the Pro-Abortion, Pro-Homosexual Church of the Americas. Springfield, a predator's paradise. One of the most salient charges made against Ryan in the McCormick suit was that while he was busily engaged in his own homosexual affairs with prostitutes and priests entrusted to his care, the Diocese of Springfield had become a magnet for other clerical sexual predators. Although as the suit charges, some pederast priests were active in the Springfield Diocese under former Bishop William McNicholas and probably even earlier under William A. O'Connor, who retired in 1975, there is no question that Ryan's systematic cover-up of the criminal activity of clerical predators in his diocese was motivated by a sincere, was motivated by a desire to cover up his own immoral and criminal behavior. Take the case of serial pederast Father G. Neil D. Transfer was D.'s middle name. Starting in 1964, the year of his ordination, Dee was transferred to at least 11 Springfield parishes by Bishop William O'Connor and his successor, Joseph McNicholas. In 1981, McNicholas finally pulled Dee from parish work and brought him into the chancery to become director of radio and television communications. In 1987, Father Dee took a sick leave and Bishop Ryan sent him off for treatment to curb his pederastic behavior. When Dee got out of therapy, Bishop Ryan arranged for Father Dee to relocate in the gay-friendly Diocese of Amarillo, Texas, under Bishop Leroy Theodore Matisson. Matisson assigned Dee to parishes in Nazareth and Amarillo, and then made him pastor of Immaculate Heart Parish. Bishop Matisson recently made the national headlines when it was discovered that he had established a priest emergency relief fund to raise money for clerics removed from office on sexual molestation charges. 
1991, a Springfield man came forward and accused Dee of molesting him shortly after the priest was ordained. Attorney Frederick Nessler is representing the abuse victim in a civil suit against the Springfield Diocese. Then there is the case of Father Lawrence M. Gibbs, a sex abuse lawyer against Father Gibbs. A sex abuse lawsuit against Father Gibbs was filed January 3, 1993. The molestation was alleged to have taken place in the Diocese of Joliet when Ryan was an auxiliary bishop. In the 1970s, the Diocesan Seminary Review Board voted 9-0 to block seminarian Gibbs' advancement to ordination, but Ryan went to bat for him. Gibbs, described as an emotional time bomb, was ordained for the Joliet Diocese on May 12, 1973, in spite of the unanimous objections of the review board. When complaints of sexual abuse against Gibbs began to reach the chancery, Ryan, joined by Bishop Imish, defended the priest. In 1993, a lawsuit was filed by three men who identified Father Gibbs as the priest who molested them when they were minors. One of the victims, Joseph Dietrich, swore under oath that he was abused by Gibbs more than 50 times over a seven-year period. Dietrich said that the priest would bring altar boys to his Wonder Lake cottage cabin in Mount McKen in McHenry County. Gibbs reportedly plied them with liquor, watched them masturbate naked in front of him, inserted tampons in their, into their rectums, and paddled them in various stages of undress. The case was settled out of court for an undisclosed amount. Father Gibbs was defrocked in 1993. In 1995, attorneys representing the families of sexual abuse victims of Reverend Joseph Havy of St. Agnes filed suit against the Springfield priest. Havy was charged with plying his victims, who ranged in age from 11 to 14, with alcohol and marijuana subjecting them to gay porn and then forcing them to perform ritualistic sexual acts upon him. In 1986, Reverend Walter Wirtz of St. Bridget's Church in Liberty pleaded guilty to abusing three teenage boys the previous year and received a six-year sentence. The records show that Bishop Bryan and the Diocese of Springfield paid the victims not to file suit and to keep details of their case secret in an out-of-court settlement for an undisclosed amount. Diocese purchases home for Bishop Ryan. On October 19, 1999, the same day that Bishop Ryan resigned, the Holy See announced the appointment of Monsignor George Joseph Lucas, the former rector of Kenrick Glennon Seminary in St. Louis, to the Diocese of Springfield. Monsignor Lucas was ordained on December 13, 1999, by Cardinal George of Chicago, with co-consecrator Papal Nuncio Archbishop Gabriel Montalvo on his left and the disgraced Bishop Daniel Ryan on, the, on his right. The ceremony took place at the Ansar Shrine, a Masonic temple in downtown Springfield. Archbishop Justin Regali delivered the sermon. Once in office, Lucas not only retained fathers Eugene E. Costa and John A. Rankin, 
who had offhandedly dismissed Father John Reeves' complaints against Ryan, he made them both Monsignors. Rankin, a former president of the Canon Law Society, went on to serve on the NCCB's Ad Hoc Committee on Sexual Abuse. Bishop Lucas also purchased a private home for the retired Bishop Ryan with funds from the diocesan treasury. He has also permitted Ryan to carry out confirmations and days of retreat in the, spring, in the Springfield Diocese. In February 2004, Lucas reached a $3 million out-of-court settlement with 28 victims of clerical sex abuse in the Springfield Diocese, including Matthew McCormick, whose lawsuit was dismissed. Money for the settlement was taken from investment accounts, the sale of property, and possible loans. Following the announcement of the settlement, Bishop Lucas met with the victims and their families. The bishop apologized and promised to change the manner in which victims of clerical sex abuse are treated. In the meantime, the charges against Bishop Ryan, including the report by the anonymous diocese who reviewed the case, have been forwarded to the Vatican by Archbishop Montalvo. Details of the investigation are confidential. Bishop Ryan underwent open-heart surgery in 2003. It remains to be seen if the Pope will take any action against the unremorseful Bishop Ryan or if he will leave the bishop to his maker. My reading today, May 3rd, 2021, from the Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church, Volume 4, pages 817 to 821, cites more examples of pederastic activity of priests and bishops with young boys or homosexual activity of priests and bishops with other priests. When President Clinton was accused of having sexual relations with Monica Lewinsky, Jennifer Flowers, and other women, and was impeached over that behavior, many of these same pederast and homosexual priests and bishops might have expressed disgust and outrage over presidents being involved in sexual scandals, but conversely and hypocritically have no problems with and make all kinds of rationalizations and excuses for their own involvement in lustful sexual activity with boys and other priests, which is a double standard on their part. President Trump was accused by 26 women of having affairs with them and was impeached twice for presidential misconduct, and yet many Catholics and other Christians and these same priests and bishops consider him a godly man and next to Jesus almost in being this country's savior and the greatest president that we've ever had, despite all of his lies, misconduct, womanizing, indifference, racism, narcissism, and other shortcomings and sins. I really don't want to get into any arguments with anyone over this, since one of our podcasters here of DOLW likes Trump. But the point is that Trump, Clinton, Grover Cleveland, Warren G. Harding, John F. Kennedy, or any other president who has been involved in sex scandals, as bad as their behavior was, didn't represent Jesus Christ or God, even if they invoked God in their speeches. Priests and bishops should be held to a far higher standard than any president or other politician is held up to, since they do represent God, unlike the politicians. And so greater outrage and disgust deserves to be shown to these priests 
and bishops when they violate their vows and oaths of office and betray their betray the public and parishioners trust in them. When politicians don't get away with that behavior and with betraying the public trust and are called to account over it and impeached or penalized priests, bishops, and clergymen generally in other denominations deserve even less to get away with that and deserve even more to be called to account over it and penalized. This isn't only happening in the Catholic Church, but in other denominations as well, as was evidenced by Jimmy Swaggart, Jim Baker, Father Divine, Elijah Muhammad, and even in non-Christian religions and Christian leaders. This isn't a political rant, which has no place in a religious truth podcast, but only saying that what is good for the goose is good for the gander, and behavior that gets politicians condemned should get church leaders condemned even more. If a church pastor or leader, such as Jimmy Swaggart or Jim Baker, has generally fallen into sin and not deliberately sought out prostitutes or other ways to commit sexual sin, knowing full well that it is a sin, then he should be prayed for and helped to regain his faith and right practice. Since anyone can fall into sin and need prayers and help to get back up again. Though the just fall seven times, they rise again. But the wicked stumble from only one mishap. Proverbs 24:16. Jesus fell three times on the way to the cross, and Peter fell by denying Christ three times, but repented of it and made three professions of love for Jesus. The difference between righteous and unrighteous people falling is that the righteous repent of it and get back up after they fall, but unrighteous people wallow in their sins like pigs and say like those in the medical alert commercials, I've fallen and I can't get up. Everyone can get back up out of a habit of sin if they will just make a sincere effort at doing so and keep at it and ask God for help. When you fall off the horse, get back on it again, as did Saul when he was thrown off his horse and became Paul and started off in a different direction. Don't just wallow in your sins as Howard Hughes did, lying on his bed in his hotel rooms in the Bahamas, Acapulco, in Las Vegas, with the drapes taped shut to block out all sunlight and watching old movies on his movie projector and eaten up by demons, doubts, fears, and his many physical ailments that he brought on himself. This supposed master of the world, according to Satanism, and one of those to whom the Satanic Bible was dedicated. How many other people in the world who were and are nowhere near as rich as Howard Hughes was still allowed and allow themselves to also be eaten up by demons, doubts, fears, in their drug addiction, pedophilia, alcoholism, and other sicknesses, and ended or end up committing suicide. These pederast and homosexual priests and bishops are part of that same crowd. We see people in that crowd everywhere. These priests and bishops say that they are just making Catholicism more relevant to the modern world, and that the old restrictions against homosexuality don't apply anymore, and never really did, since homosexuality isn't a sin and never was. But they forget that Christianity and Catholicism especially can 
never be made fully acceptable to the world until it becomes exactly the same as Satanism is now. Catholicism must never become acceptable to the world because if it does, it will cease to be Catholicism as, as it already has with these pederast and homosexual priests and bishops and their supporters. The world needs to move closer to the truth of the Catholic Church and not the Church move closer to the lies of the world. According to Satanism and the world, there is very little left of Christianity anyway after it has been revised, modernized, and demythologized to make it worth bothering about or relevant at all. So they say, why waste time buying oats for a dead horse? Catholicism is the truth of Jesus Christ, not a dead horse. Even though these priests and bishops agree with Satanists and worldly people, since they are Satanists and worldly people too, that Catholicism is outmoded, irrelevant, and just a dead horse, and keep trying to mutate and update it to suit themselves. But Jesus Christ and his church will be victorious over them, and not they over him and his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. There is another form of the flesh. There is another form of sin of the flesh that just than just sodomy, pederasty, lust, and sexual sin, and that is racism, since it also concerns itself only with the flesh and ignores or even denies the spirit. So I will make a slight digression here from the central topic of the book we are citing from to address that aspect of the sin of the flesh, since it is all one. For our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but with the principalities, with the powers, with the world rulers of this present darkness, with the evil spirits in the heavens, Ephesians 6.12. Judge not by the appearance, but judge a righteous judgment. Do to others as you would have them do to you. For if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. Luke 6, 31-33 All of these scripture verses and many more condemn this sin of the flesh of racism. God didn't put black and white and other people in the world for us to hate and want to kill and separate from each other. Only a God of hate would have done that, and that isn't the God of love. Racism means hating a race, period. Doing something about what you feel is a whole other can of worms, but doing something about it or power isn't necessary for racism. If racism were about power, it would be called powerism. For those black racists who say that only white people can be racist because they have all the power. That is like saying that if you don't have money or any way to get yourself something to eat when you're hungry, then you aren't really hungry. But no ability to do something to get food doesn't stop you from being hungry. That is just a tactic that black racists use to deflect the charge of racism from themselves. The Nation of Islam and other black racist groups want to separate from America and form their own country, but that is just a fantasy on their part, since that they are correct in their view that white people just always care more about white people than they ever care about black people, and we didn't let the Southern Confederate white people separate from the Union and form their own country, and we didn't let the white German Nazis take over the world, then we aren't going to let black people break up the Union to form their own country 
or take over the world either. No governor of any state is going to just hand his state over to the nation of Islam and tell the people living there, well, you just have to go and find yourselves somewhere else to live because this state is going to be part of Muhammad land now. That is unrealistic and stupid. There would be black people living in that state who wouldn't want to be part of Muhammad land either. And despite all the problems here in this country, still prefer living here to living in some, living in some fantasy land country and wouldn't want to just throw up their hands and leave America, making all the hell that they went through to be here have been for nothing. This nation, the nation of Islam and their ilk, don't want equal rights, but only superior rights. And don't want equal rights, but only superior rights and other black races to get what they want and impose their will on other people. All white people simply aren't responsible for the actions of any of them, and we have to be white guilty into going along with the idea that all white people are racist. Yep, 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 yep. When John Dillinger, a white man, was robbing banks in the 1930s and the cops couldn't lay their hands on him right away, they didn't just go out and arrest the first white man that they saw because we are all responsible for the actions of any of us. If we aren't guilty for the crimes of John Dellinger or Charles Manson, we aren't guilty for the crimes of slave traders or slave owners either. Satan is the real enemy of the black people, white people, and everybody else, but loves to have us focus on each other and distract our attention away from him. And now a reading from the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. 2113. Idolatry not only refers to false pagan worship, it remains a constant temptation to faith. Idolatry consists in, in divinizing what is not God. Man, man commits idolatry whenever he honors and reveres a creature in place of God. Whether this be gods or demons, for example, Satanism, power, pleasure, race, ancestors, the state, money, etc. Jesus says, you cannot serve God and mammon. Many martyrs died for not adoring the beast, refusing even to simulate such worship. Idolatry rejects the unique lordship of God. It is therefore incompatible with communion with God. And that's all I have to read or comment on right now, and so I'll end it here. May God bless this podcast and may he use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.